and a tuna will slowly fill out in fatness all the way back to the tail. We used to call them footballs because they got really, really fat and really round. And um, when they got to that stage, you, um, the other ones that really got the high price over in, in, in Japan. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. In our last episode, we heard how growing up as a fifth-generation fisherman in Port Lincoln shaped the life of the young Andy Puglisi. It was the early 1990s when Port Lincoln and the Australian seafood industry was changed forever, and the Puglisi family were at the forefront of this change. The tuna ranching industry in Port Lincoln started in the early 1990s as an experimental venture. At the time, the fishing industry was facing a decline due to overfishing and a depletion of wild stocks, leading fishermen to look for alternative sources of income. Tuna ranching offered a solution. It involved the wild catching and rearing of tuna in pens at sea, allowing for a controlled and sustainable supply of fish. In 1991, a pilot project was established in Port Lincoln to test the viability of this industry. The project was a collaboration between the South Australian government the local fishing industry, including the Puglisi's, and researchers from Flinders University. The first ranch was set up in Boston Bay and consisted of a series of large pens where young tuna caught in the wild were raised. The project was successful and the tuna grew rapidly, reaching maturity within a few months. The success of the Port Lincoln project led to the expansion of the industry, and by the mid-1990s, several companies had set up tuna ranches in Port Lincoln providing employment for the local fishing community. The industry continued to grow and Port Lincoln became known as the tuna capital of the world. Andy Puglisi, under the watchful eye of his father, Bob, was part of this pioneering and amazing industry. You know, the the, the tuna fishery in in Australia um, was was a wild catch polling fish that they would put into cans. And uh, that was a... um, that, that. that was definitely a boom and bust style of fishery, and um, but very much hard. There was it was virtually impossible to manage like we have with our with 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 Spencer Gulf prawn. And it's it's a, a migratory fish that goes around the world. And one of the fishermen over there, um, a guy called Dinko Lucan, sort of. They were at the time they were catching the better quality fish, putting them direct onto the tuna, uh, onto the tuna um, uh, reefer vessels uh, from Japan, and they would pick out the best quality fish. They would ikijimi them and and freeze them down and take them direct to to um, Japan from there. Um, and uh, they were getting paid a higher quali- a higher price for that fish. And Dinko just thought, well, what happens if we catch that fish, we feed it up, we put it in a pen and let it swim around in circles and we'll feed it, feed it, get it fat and then send it to the market, which at the time he recognised that they were buying that tuna because it was a higher fat content, that they were paying more for the higher fat com- content product. And that's what you'll see on the East Coast here. You'll get a nice big fat bluefin that's got, that's, that's just, just been out of the... Um, been catching, uh, been eating well. It'll have a higher fat content. We'll get and we'll get a lot more um, for that that product when it hits the, the 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 skidgy market in Japan. It's not skidgy anymore, is it? It's another no, yeah. The 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 market floor in in Japan. So they um they they came up with the idea. Let's purse in the fish, 
put them into a cage, tow that cage back to Port Lincoln, and we'll we'll feed them, um, you know, what they normally eat, them pilchards and sardines and herring and mackerel and anchovies and fatten that fish up. And and in a short space of time, you know, from February through to uh, the end of April, May, they'll um they'll almost double in uh, they'll they'll add 50 percent of their weight on so they'll come in at about 20 kilo 18 quick kilo at the time and um you know they can uh, the average weight of some of those fish was going out at you know 26 to 30 kilo average for the whole cage my father was part of um got in on that bandwagon and and we started um setting up to in a small way to uh, to to farm tuna, and we did that um, we did that from '91 through to 2003. The implementation of tuna ranching in Port Lincoln was a highly innovative and creative solution to the challenges faced by the fishing industry. Port Lincoln was one of the first places in the world to experiment with this new method, which involved rethinking traditional fishing methods and using technology and knowledge to create a new industry. The success of the pilot project helped establish the viability of tuna ranching, which became a major contributor to the local economy and a sustainable source of income for the fishing community. Well, so they'll go and catch the fish at sea, which can happen anything up to uh, 200 miles from Port Lincoln. They'll um, we'll tow a, a, 40, a 40 to 50 metre cage, which is 20 metres deep. They'll tow that out to sea and, you know, basically in the vicinity of where the where the 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 tuna persona is and where the fish actually are there's an art form and just being in the right place for that one yeah well i've got planes that fly around up there and they can see that that fish and then they'll communicate back to the the persona and the fisherman to say um you know the fish are over here. They'll circle around it, and the and they'll, they'll, the the persona will race over there. They'll send a chum boat over, and they'll feed some feed the um, feed the uh, uh, the fish, chuck chuck some live bait in the water to keep them on the surface, and the persona will run the net around them, purse it up, and hold them in the net. They changed the shape of the net so it was. The, the bag of the net was quite big and open, so the the fish will um, stay. They'll have space to, uh, to 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 swim around in. Typically, a uh, um, a per se net will be quite shallow in the bag, and they'll to, so they can scoop the fish out and get the fish onto the boat uh, and pump the fish on the boat that way. So they'll I'll keep the net open. They'll tow the tow cage across, which sounds you know I'll just tow it across there, but. The actual, <laughs> the um, the tow cage uh, at this stage tows at about you know one and a half two knots at best when they go on flat stick. So once the fish are in the cage, they can only tow at about one to one and one point two knots an hour. So yeah, there's it's not a, it's 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 there's an art form in actually filling the cage, and they'll um they'll join the two nets together. They'll they'll tow the they'll tow the uh, the 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 um the tuna pen to alongside the uh, the the persona net and alongside the big persona, and they'll tie it all together. They'll have a, a window cut in the side of the net. That's a, a special net there, a special opening that's underneath the water. They'll join the two nets together, shallow up the um, per se net, and force the fish to swim through the, uh, the, the 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 hole, which is about four four meters 
each, you know, four by four. It's quite a big hole in a net when you look at it. And they'll swim through there and, and then they're captured. And once they've got about, um, in the in the 40 metre cages, we used to put about 9,000 pieces, I reckon, back in the day. Um, and now they've got 45 metre cages and I think they put a fit, you know, 14 to 16,000 pieces in one of those cages. It's a, you know, it's quite interesting. You make it five metres bigger in diameter and almost double the size of the water in the cage. So they're able to fit a lot more in there. And then they'll slowly tow that home. Back in the day, we were out on 130 latitude, longitude 130, 131. So it was a 240 mile tow home, which would take us... That was, that was a good two weeks to do that. It took a long time getting the piss beltage out of you with the different changes that come through. And if it got wild, like the 30 or 40 knots, mate, they just turn off the engine and just hang it, using the cage as a drogue, and big waves would crash over the boat, fill the back deck full of water. <laughs> Fattening a tuna before selling it in Japan improved its value because the fatty flesh of the tuna was highly prized by the Japanese buyers. The most valuable cuts of tuna in Japan are those rich in fat, such as the toro, the otoro, and the chutoro. This is because the increased fat content imparts a rich, deep flavor and a more tender texture to the meat, which are highly prized by the Japanese seafood connoisseur. The fattening process involves feeding the tuna a diet high in energy-rich ingredients to build a substantial layer of fat in its flesh. This enhanced the quality of the fish and contributed to the overall success of Port Lincoln tuna in Japan. Anyway, um, I'll tow that, that cage home. And then um, we'll, with 9,000, well, back then, 9,000 pieces and for our operation, and we would split that up into three to three and a half cages. We would fill three and a half cages up with that, that, that tow, tow it alongside, put about two and a half, three thousand pieces into a, a 40 metre ring, and um, count them as they were, you know, with cameras and all that sort of stuff, count them through and take an average weight of that uh, of that fish in that net so they would times the amount of fish going through by that average weight to give you the your, your total number of fish that you've caught and that would come off your quota. And, um, and you'd fatten it up over the next three to four months uh, in a... In, and you know, like just what I just remember watching those fish when they first come in, they're like they were really skinny and they were f- really hungry, you know. So you, they'd throw um, throw some uh, uh, shovelfuls of pilchards into the water there, which they'd thawed out before they'd put it in there because they come in frozen blocks. Throw the fish in, and the water would foam, you know, like it was just a savage. <laughs> For the first month or so, you'd never get in the water; they'd bloody eat you alive. <laughs> Mate of mine jumped in the water one day because he was got, he, it was really hot, hot and glassy day, and they threw a heap of fish next to him, <laughs> heap of pilchers next to him, and then one of the tuna decided that his big toe was <laughs> his big toe was a, a, a pilchard bit his big toe, let it go, but it looked like someone had got razor blades and stripped the bottom and top of his toes and couldn't walk for very good for a couple of weeks after. <laughs> But, um, yeah, that was um, – and then you'd fatten them up. And then in the end, you know, you'd get – you'd go out and you'd throw a pilchard out there, throw pilchards in the water, and the, by this stage, the fish – you can see they're starting to get 
quite fat, you know, and a fit and a tuna will slowly fill out and um, in fatness all the way back to the tail. And um, when they get to, or they, we used to call them footballs because they got really, really fat and really round. And uh, when they got to that stage, you um, uh, that that's what the other ones that really got the high price over in in, in Japan. So, um, but you'd, you'd throw the fish, you throw some bait in the water for the fish to eat, and you'd see them swim past, and they're like, like you know, they're not they're not they're not racing anymore because they're nice and full. And they'd grab a grab a pilchard and they'd hold it in their mouth and swim a little bit and then they'd let it go because they didn't feel like that one and another one would come and eat it so that was fine but yeah it was pretty amazing how they'd gone from full race race racing machines to race horses or really fast Ferraris because when they go when they put their speed on they go really quick and uh, it was it was really cool to watch. Ikejima is a critical step in the process of harvesting and processing tuna that is essential for preserving the quality of the fish. By quickly and precisely killing the fish and preventing the build-up of lactic acid and spoilage due to microorganisms, the Ikejima process helps produce a high-quality flesh that is highly prized. Once you get to, we would always try out the market early in the piece. We'd go out and catch, you know, 40 to 100 pieces of fish. Um, We would and send that to market and you know gill and gut it you'd put a you'd gill and gut the fish you would bleed it you would catch it in the in the net we'd do a little persane shot inside the uh inside the pen we would purse that up a diver would go in grab the fish by in the by the gills and put it onto a chute that we would take it up onto the boat with that chute it would get up onto the killing table where they would stab the the fish just underneath the side um, fins, and then uh, they would apple core out um, uh, the soft spot in the then uh, take out the brain, and that will also expose the uh, spinal cord. We would pass a, a, a thin piece of um, uh, stainless steel wire um, down. The, the down the spinal cord to kill the nervous nervous system because if you didn't do that right, those nerves kept um, uh, operating or sending signals to the to the to the meat to the to the to the fish, and um, what would happen then is the 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 it would burn the flesh and give it a, a bit of flavour and the Japanese wouldn't pay very good money for that so if you killed it quickly bled it well and killed the spinal took the brain out and killed the spinal cord you would get a a, um the best quality fish and get the best price in the in the japanese market the um and then uh then then a guy and one of my roles on on the harvest was to was to gill and gut the tuna i wasn't really good compared to the japanese dudes or the korean dudes that they that they would get in to do the job but I had a go at it for a while, and it's it's quite interesting, and sort of set me up for a love of a really good knife and a really sharp knife. I still got all my fingers, which is pretty handy. I wasn't that I wasn't that that uh, that that crazy with a knife over my time. And uh, then that fish would go into an ice slurry and get the core temperature of the fish down quite quickly, as quickly as we can. That would sit there. Um, so in the early days, we used to keep them overnight and then send them out the next day. And um, 
but uh, they would set it, uh, and then they would be air freighted through to the uh, the Japanese market where it would go. The, the, they would be graded um, when they got cleaned and, and dressed to go to market. Um, and the and the Japanese uh, buyers would have their representatives there who would look at the colour of the flesh, and uh, and they would assign each fish to a market that it would suit that colour of the flesh, and um, then it would be uh, it would catch the the, the it would be trucked uh, to Adelaide overnight or even to Sydney sometimes, and then that's two days of travel through to Sydney, one day overnight to Adelaide. And then it would be air freighted through to to Narita Airport and distributed out to the different fish markets to be sold um, the following oh, that day or the following day, and um, that uh, and, you know like back in those days we were getting averaging around three thousand yen per kilo at uh, which was around you know fifty dollars a kilo for the fish, which was fantastic when you look at what they used to get for the fish back in uh, the the tuna canning days and the fishermen would get a uh, um, was getting around a dollar a kilo for a, a, a canned fish and for a lot more work and a lot more value adding they ended up getting fifty dollars a kilo for the fish that's come back a long way now but um uh, it's still, uh, uh, you know, with efficiencies and, and, and volumes and all that sort of stuff, they've had, uh, the, the fishermen now are making a good profit out of it. A visit to the Skidgy Fish Market would be a truly memorable experience for a young country boy, providing an unparalleled window to the world of Japanese seafood culture and an opportunity to experience the sights, sounds and tastes of one of the world's most vibrant and dynamic food markets. One of the great experiences of my life was to go through to, to uh, back then the, the, the market the, the market in Tokyo was the Skidgy Market and that was just an amazing place. You go in there and they had like 10,000 different stalls. You know, like the individual buyers with all different types of fish. You know, like the stuff that we used to push over the side on the prawn trawl, a little tiny... Um, uh, flatheads, all these smelly, stinky little shitty things that you <laughs> never think twice about it, mate. They were selling it there at that market. You know, there was there was um, uh, you know seaweed with um, fish eggs on the outside. You know, and they were selling that. They had it was the most diverse sort of. Um, uh, things that you could think of eels you know and then one of the things that just blew me away was going there and i'd sit there watching a guy filleting a uh, a box of live eels now these things are alive he'd put a put a put a um wriggling all around the place he would flatten it out take off a fill it off one side cut out the cut out the backbone and then trim up the, 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 the two fillets that were butterfly fillets like you do a garfish over here, cut the head off, put it down. And that's about as long as it took. It was just amazing. I sat there just checking that out. I was there for about 20 minutes going, check this guy out, this is amazing. And the, my, the, my, my chaperone at the time was the guy uh, was in a gucky from, uh, from Maruha. I'm not sure if he still works for him. This is... It was 20 years, 22 years ago now. I think he's moved on to another another tuna company. But um, Inagaki, would, he lost me. He's going, and then he'd come back to where I was. What are you doing? I said, far out. You should see this guy fill up these live eels. And he's going, oh, for God's sake, come on. 
dragged me away. <laughs> Couldn't believe I've wasted all that time looking at a guy doing that. Oh, well, you'd go across the other side of the market and there's there was this, this cube of whale and um, whale meat and like the darkest, reddest meat you've ever seen. It was like a cube. It was about, you know, a foot by foot square, you know. A foot by, you know, 12 inches, 12 inches, just sitting on this block. I remember it like it was yesterday. And, uh, you know, that was 100 bucks a kilo for, the, for, the, for, that, for that whale meat. And, you know, you can understand why it's so highly prized. And... Um, but at the end of the day, you know, like you'd go across the, and we were there to see the see the tuna um, tuna being sold. So you'd go over there, and there was five different um, uh, at that market. There was five different um, auction houses there. The Maruha one. There was a couple of others. I can't remember all their names. Um, and uh, that was always cool to watch too, because you'd see the guy up there, and one of them, you know, they'd be they'd get a dance on, and they'd be, and then and <laughs> they'd stand over the top of the fish and on a little box, and everybody'd be watching him, all the all the buyers, and they're all smoking durry <laughs> with a light that they'd look at the fish with it, and uh, he'd start, and one, and then and you'd see each each auctioneer would have a different action. Some were nice and cool and smooth, and one of them he'd, he'd be jumping up and down and barking like a dog, you know. I don't know what the bloody hell he was saying, but all the Japanese guys were in him. They all knew it easy. They all had it. They're all fucking bidding and you know, cursing and carrying on. And then you'd, your fish would come up, and you know that was it. Was it was really cool to see the fish caught, fed, harvested, processed, and you know cleaned and, and packed for market and then see it in the market to get to get you know your your, your 50 to 60 dollars a kilo for that fish it was a, it was a real experience something i'll never forget dining in japan can be a truly unforgettable experience for anyone who's never been there with a rich culinary tradition a focus on using the best ingredients and a commitment to presentation and service. It's no wonder that Japanese cuisine is considered by many to be amongst the best in the world. For a young bloke from Port Lincoln, it was life-changing. Oh, but some of the amazing things, like it's the same with travel anywhere in the world. You, If you dig it out and you find really great places to eat, it's always an amazing experience. But going to Japan, like there's institutions that you go to. There's a sushi place in Japan that if you're lucky enough to get there in the, at, at the right time so you don't have to wait in line because it always has a massive long line and you get the freshest fish that comes there, the freshest fish that you that's just come off the market floor that morning and um, it is an institution. Everybody that is who's anybody has been to to that um, that uh, that sushi place in in Skidgy Market. And you know, it, I'm not. I don't. I haven't been there for so long. I don't know if it's moved on to the new market. But um, that was that was always just the most perfect sushi that you could ever think of. A couple of pieces of shimmy on the side. Um, and always, you know, there were some of the most amazing meals that um, uh, I remember going. The boys from Maruha took me to a, a tempura place and um, uh, in in uh, in Ginza, the Ginza um, uh, uh, suburb or prefecture, whatever it's called. And 
I was, you know, they all, they asked me, oh, what do you eat? And I said, do you see anything you don't eat? And I said, mate, you bring it out, I'll have a go at it, you know. So if you actually have a look at my body shape, you'll understand what I'm trying to say. And um, they had a little aquarium up the end of the of the bar, and the, the perfect part about it is they all, if you get up on the bar, you've got all the action happening in front of you. The guy who's um, the, the tempura uh, master, he was, you know, there was no... No temperature gauge on the on the big vat. And there was a, a vat probably about a meter around in diameter of this of of beautiful oil, and he would flick a little tiny bit of the tempura in there, and then how that was bubbling was how hot it needed to be, and then he would put these fish in there, and uh, you know you're sitting there, don't understand a word of Japanese, and the guys there, and they would order something, and I wouldn't understand what it was, and next minute the guy's going over there and. He, um, with a little net, he would get, uh, there's a, there was a, uh, a, um, little school of horse mackerel chows that we would, in, in South Australia, we used to catch plenty of them, and, mate, they were horrible things, mate, the, the Japanese loved them, so they'd, they would, he would fish one of those out, and temper all that up for us and that was really a great experience and then there was an abalone, little black lip abalone on the, on the side of the, of the thing, and, He'd take that off and say, oh, God, someone's having uh, abalone, you know, and, he'd, and I've never seen this before, never eaten it like that again. Um, he'd cleaned it up in front of us, put it into the tempura, cooked it into the tempura and uh, in the oil, brought it out, sliced it up, and it was like butter. Man, I've cooked, tried to do that a hundred times since and it always turned out sort of like the, the texture of the sole of my shoe. So... <laughs> <laughs> but the um uh and then you know there was also a couple of little little tiny um little snappers about eight inches long you know they were swimming up, up and down in the in the in the, in the aquarium patrolling away and then one of them got fished out and i'm going oh someone's getting <laughs> getting uh um uh, someone's having snap snapper not realizing it was us and this guy whipped a fillet off the off that of the live snapper, sliced it up into some sashimi, served it up in front of us. The other half of the fish was still <laughs> still alive. You know, the greenies out there at the moment are probably rolling over if they listen to this story will yeah, piss their pants. But that um it was, a, it was an experience like you never have before and, and that's that's the beauty of of Japan. You know, you go to their they have sushi houses there that uh, restaurants there that of a quality like you've never, you'll never experience anywhere else. Regardless of what people try to tell you how good they actually are outside of Japan, you won't you won't see that what you get. Some of those experiences I've had over there. Fishermen are often referred to as opportunistic hunters because they're always looking for the best opportunities to maximise their yields and profits in time at sea. This often means that they will shift from one fishery to the next as conditions and market demands change. The tuna ranching industry experienced a boom and bust cycle in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. The Puglisi family made a wise and astute call to exit the industry at the top of its value and turned their focus to a new and emerging world of mussel farming. So in 2003, um, uh, it was sort of, it's sort of the fishery come to a, the, the industry come to a sort of crossroads. It was, we were as a company, uh, a very small company. We didn't do a lot of, a lot of volume. 
um, back then, you know, we we would do about 300 tonne of tuna a year uh, in, in once it was fattened up and grown out, 250 to 300 tonne. We didn't, and um, it was at a stage there where, you know, if we're going to stay in this, we're either going to get big or get out. And um, the smart thing to do at the time was to get out. Um, we were bought out by um, one of the one of the other large tuna companies, and and uh, they bought out. We we were lucky enough to sell out at the peak of the market. And that um, it was something I didn't want to do. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was an amazing fishery and and most dynamic fishery in Australia. Um, with the the highest turnover, um. Yeah, prestige and all that sort of stuff was all in amongst it all, and I didn't want to get out of it. But um, my old man was—he—he'd he saw the writing on the wall and said, "Right, it's time to go." So we sold out of that, and uh, it was um, as it turned out. You know, there's a look, since that then the uh, the, uh, the the industry's really changed, and they've been through some quite hard times, where the uh, the rest of the world took came and had a look at how. The, uh, the 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 South Australian guys had created this uh, amazing quality uh, product and uh, adopted that into the the Mediterranean and also in Mexico and they also do it in a certain amount of it in Japan itself. So that um, that has really uh, watered down the high 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 prices that the that our that our guys were getting over in the market as well. So. Um, we were lucky enough to get out at the, at the top end, and uh, the, the, they've had some really hard times since. And uh, but now they've they've turned it around and doing quite well. Um, it is a really great fish. It's a beautiful fish, and like one of the most amazing things is getting in the water with a tuna. The colours of that fish are just amazing. And part of what we what we did back in the day with. Um, with the uh, regional development board and something that uh, uh, John has helped us out with a lot was to have a uh, a chef's tour and um, bringing a wholesaler in from each of the uh, capital cities of Australia and um, bringing in three or four of the best chefs that they had in that each each of those towns each of those cities. And uh, then show them what Port Lincoln's actually got. This is probably another story. It should be in another part of the uh, interview, but I'll jump jump ahead a little bit. And, you know, they get to see the mussels, the oysters, the kingfish, have a look at the tuna, have a look at the abalone industry. And um, one of those real experiences to go out and see a, a tuna harvest uh, when they're happening and you know, get some of those opinion makers, the Marty Boatzes, the the Neil Perrys, the the you know Manus, they've all and Colin Fashnages, they've all been across and had a look, and jump in the water with the tuna, have a look at the 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 fish swimming past, and you sit there going, oh, it's dangerous. They're gonna they they do swim fast. They can swim at twenty four knots an hour. All day, every day. They're just the most amazing. They're a real racehorse of the sea, and you see them coming towards you. You think they're gonna they're gonna smash into you and hurt you. You know, that doesn't matter what you do. When you're in the water, we're such a gumby in the water. You know, you try and put your hand out to touch him. They just 
they always keep away from me. It's, it's a real experience, and the colours of that fish, I'll never forget that as well. In our next episode, we'll hear how Pugs put down his tuna gear and transitioned into his third career in the seafood industry. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.